such a joy to be with you. I'm going to do my best to stand up, speak up, and shut up. Uh, I'm burning with uh, something that I hope will, 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 will help you. I want to speak to you today on what I've called holy ambition or godly ambition. Uh, the Bible is, is, uh, is quite thorough in the way it addresses unholy or ungodly ambition, selfish ambition, and uh, the Bible has examples of how that flows, and the book of James in particular warns us against selfish ambition. Uh, but the Bible commends and uh, warmly applauds uh, godly ambition. And uh, I have sensed in the time we've been here today uh, a sense in which the Lord is like attaching 50 helium balloons to my heart, and I'm hoping that He's going to do the same with you as you hear the Word of God and pull you upward and forward and on to uh, understand your one and only life. I don't want to lose a single person. I see there's some gray heads in the room, which gives me massive encouragement. Uh, nice to see you, Trevor Swad, who's an absolute legend in church stories, and yet he's a humble man, and, and uh, we, we really do honor you, sir, for the years of your, your labor. But uh, even you, sir, and uh, all of us who still have some life to live, I want to speak to you about holy ambition. And my prayer is that whether you're a seasoned, long-haul, faithful servant of Christ, or whether you are a junior school person, a high school person, or somebody studying at university, or starting your own business, or early in marriage, that we would all hear this. It's so important for us to experience in our culture, we are living in a world that is continually uh, 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 bringing sort of black background noise to our lives, and it dilutes the kind of stuff that I'm calling you to this morning. And I want to put it to you, what's the point of having a driving ambition for your life if you're on the wrong road? And I want us to look at, 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 at uh, outside of Jesus, the most ambitious man who's ever lived. And I want to make a case for for his life being a model, his message being a model for living our lives a little bit differently. I look like I've got your attention. I want to answer three questions in the main today. Uh, what is holy ambition? How do you get it? What does it look like if you've got it? And we're going to begin with Romans chapter 15, 18 to 24. And I know some of you are thinking, but that's all Paul talking about the gospel and his missionary activity all over the world. Hang on, the same Paul uh, and what he's preaching here or what he's writing to the Romans speaks so directly to whatever sphere of life you're in, and I'll make the case for that in a moment. Verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders and by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around, to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. 
This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I've longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my way there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul's speaking very personally about how ambition plays itself out in his life, and yet I believe there's a sense in which God could very powerfully speak to us and very personally. I'm 61. I know you find that really hard to believe, but um, I find that this message of all the messages I've preached in the last 10 years, and this is a recent message. It's burning in my heart. It's, it's, uh, I've just been away with our elders and uh, for two days, Thursday, Friday, and we have been dreaming about uh, what God could possibly be calling common ground to in the next uh, season. I hope it inspires you if you're new to church, that churches actually go away to think about the future. They're not just bums on seats singing hymns and uh, making religious noise. We are passionate about wanting to serve Christ in our cities, in our generation, and, and, and bring Him maximum, maximum glory. And I've realized that uh, I'm probably in the last uh, decade of this level of leadership going forward. I, I mean, I'm putting my hand up for the long haul, but I've become freshly aware of the brevity of life and uh, even my own capacity. Um, uh, average age of the elders on our team is 30, or, or congregation leaders, sorry, is 36, and there are nine of them. Uh, and we started this congregation 20 years ago. So when I was 41, their average age was 16. Many of them weren't even Christians then. Many of them, uh, 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 you know, had no understanding of church or ministry, and uh, some of them had been grown up in Christian homes. But it's a lovely thought to think and think, well, here we are pressing the pause button in our story to say, God, what could you be doing? And this kind of message speaks to, uh, to the future. Of our, of, of our lives and our callings. So the Apostle Paul, when he, when he says, I've made it my ambition, I want to establish the premise that every one of us were created for a holy ambition. Paul plays it out on a, on a missional apostolic playing field, but every single Christ follower, your life is defined by a birth date, in my case, 4th of April, 1955, and there's a dash, and then I end with, I die, uh, 1st of April, 2055. I'm being a bit ambitious. Uh, as you can see, godly ambition is in play here. But, um, but there's a dash between those two dates, and, and, and my premise is that God wants to take that dash. The one has happened, your birth, your death has not happened. We're in the room. Just pinch yourself. We're alive which means there's something God wants to do with that dash, which represents your and my one and only life and what you've got left of it. And I want to make a case for God's purposes and His glory fills the earth when all of God's people everywhere begin to understand that we are called. Maybe not to the same vocational apostolic ministry as Paul, but we all have a holy calling that comes from God. The Reformers were masterful in the way they uh, emphasized this doctrine of vocation. The Latin for that is vocatio. And uh, in, in, in the Reformation, if you had finished your schooling, you would sit with, uh, with counselors who would uh, 
did their own form of career guidance, but it was vocational guidance. We've lost that term. It's now getting a job. It's getting a career. And there are too many people who practice careerism. And it is hurting us more than we realize because careerism is all about selfish ambition. It begins with you and it ends with you. Vocation means there is a voice outside of you. There is a pull outside of you, and it's pulling you into the most significant. It's calling you into the sweet spot of your life and, and my life. And so if you studied, if, if, if you went into medicine or studied nursing, you did that because your vocation was to heal the world of its pain. When you said yes to being a lawyer or a policeman, you said, you said yes to righteousness in society. And yes, there is a lawyer in the Bible, Zenos the lawyer. Uh, some of us think you don't get lawyers who are Christian. Yes, you do. And uh, let's, let's reclaim uh, the legal profession for, for Christ followers. And if you said you wanted to be a teacher or a lecturer, you were wanting to give wings to the minds of a, of a, of a next generation so that they would think God's thoughts after you. Doctrine of vocation uh, means that if you call to, as we heard in the first service, Martin's got a plumbing business, you, you go and you do plumbing in homes and you, you, you build the healthiest drainage systems on planet Earth for the glory of God. It's a vocation. It's not just what I get out of bed for to earn some money so that I can pay the bills. And I think when we rediscover this, we'll change the way we get up in the morning. Can you just smile at me? I know it might be a new experience for some of you. Just smile at me. Okay, cool. Is this making sense? So here's my point. When Paul said, I've made it my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ has not been heard. I make it my ambition to do that in regions beyond. When Paul says that, Paul has established what his big yes is for his life. All the other little yeses find their orbit around that. What time I get up in the morning, uh, you know, how I go about my work. All the other yeses find their orbit around this big, big yes to the call of God in our lives. And we will build better churches, better communities, better families, uh, godlier generations if we learn to rediscover this big yes, this holy ambition, this yieldedness to God's call on our lives. In Paul's case, he was summoned. Uh, uh, conversion, it was a fantastic uh, moment on the Damascus Road, but he, he also experienced this, this, this call to be an apostle, to be a witness to the Gentiles, to proclaim the gospel in regions beyond. And so uh, what I also want you to notice, what is ambition, is that when Paul got his yes, the big yes to Jesus and to preaching the gospel where Christ has not been heard, the same time he's got that yes to Jesus, he also established his no. It's very clear. He says, when I said yes to preach Christ to those who've never heard, that is the reason why for many years I've been hindered from coming to you Romans. And I want to ask you, do you think Paul loved the Roman church? As a matter of fact, it's an interesting test. Would we want to get Paul here one Sunday or would we want to get the letter to the Romans? Which is more loving? I would say both. <laughs> Let's get Paul and the letter. But, but that church got the, 
most powerful theological treatise in the history of the church, the Roman letter. And in the letter, he's saying, hey, I, I love you guys, but I've said yes to taking Christ to regions beyond, and that's why I'm saying no to you. I can't get to you guys. Now, Apostle Paul had never read Dale Carnegie's book on how to win friends and influence people because he's shameless. He's nearly as bad as Matt. Shameless. He says, he says this. I'm paraphrasing. He says, that's why I haven't been able to come to you. Sorry. Priorities. My bigger yes. You get a no. But there's a possibility somewhere down the road on my way to Spain that I'll pop in to your church and we'll take up offering for my ministry and we're going to leave here with our camels fully laden because what are friends for if you can't abuse them? That's exactly what's, that's what he's saying. Go and read it. And then he says, I'll enjoy your company for a little while. <laughs> Shameless. The point is, when we've said yes to what is our great call, when, when that big yes, you're going to have to say lots and lots of little no's that will come across your life. And that is the mark of Christian character. You know a lot about people by the nature of the excuses. The time to reclaim the big yes for the glory of God. And that's what I would describe as ambition. It's yes to calling. It's no to lesser things. And that calling is this compulsion. It's the summons in our life that says, there's this one and only life. That's my dash. I'm going to live it to max out the glory of God in my generation. Can I have a yes? Okay. That was good, eh? We could take up a, another offering, but then it wasn't that good. Listen to this. John Stott says, ambitions for God, if they are to be worthy, can never be modest. There's something inherently inappropriate about cherishing small ambitions for God. How can we ever be content that he should acquire just a little more honor in the world? Second, how do you get holy ambition? Well, I'm glad you've asked this question. Verse 20 and 21, it answers it, and it's a You've got to really listen carefully because this is very interesting. And thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I built on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and now he quotes Isaiah 52 and 15, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So, Rigby, what's so fancy about that? Think about it. You want to fire up your readers with this whole thing of being ambitious for God in your generation. I mean, can't you do better than that, Paul? What has he left out here? You want to fire up a generation to be on mission? Surely you can reach into your arsenal of tricks and come up with something better than a little Bible verse. What, is, what has Paul not done? He hasn't spoken to the Romans about how he got his call. He didn't talk about his personal call. He didn't say, I've made it my ambition to preach the gospel as it is written. Those who've never heard will hear, and those who've never seen will see. That, that's all he uses, a Bible verse. Why doesn't he say, guys, just want you to know, I've made it my ambition from the day I met Jesus on the Damascus Road, 
and the heavens opened and I got the sovereign summons and wow, isn't it amazing? And I saw heaven open and I saw Jesus in Technicolor and the angels were singing and God put his hand on me. I was blinded for a, bit, a while and then I got the supernatural experience. My eyes were opened and wow, any of you guys had a conversion like that? He doesn't do that. Because if Paul were to do that, vocation and calling and ambition would be inaccessible to us. Because we all have unique stories. And charismatics, and we regard ourselves as those spirit-dependent people. And it's not how much of the spirit do you have, it's how much of us does the spirit have, is another way to start thinking of it. And uh, we, we... we, 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 need to, we, need, we need to see that uh, as, as charismatics, we've, we often are too busy talking about our high moments as though that's going to change the world. I'll tell you what high moments are for. They're for your personal life. They're not for public declarations of, you know, this is what God did with me. You don't need to spruce it up. God saved you. You can't do better than that. A lot of Christians, they like to talk about their and I've got some this morning. I could, I could tell you. I could, you know, you would be pretty impressed if I were to tell you some of the things. But I won't do that. Why? Because your personal story and Paul's personal story is inaccessible to the people you're wanting to stir holy ambition up. What does he use? Where does Paul, where do you get holy ambition? I'll tell you where you get it. Same place Paul got it. You get it in the text. You get it in the scriptures. You get it by subordinating your one and only life under the waterfall of that revelation of God's word. It is designed to make us come alive. Go and read Psalm 119 and just these wonderful, wonderful uh, promises of what the word of God does in the heart and the life of someone who's, who's submitted to it. And so coming back to the text, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting? He doesn't talk about that commissioning on the Damascus Road. Rather, he quotes Isaiah 52, and he shows as a leader that he himself is under the Word of God. And he says, I've made it my ambition. And then he quotes the text, as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard uh, will understand. As we meditate on the Scriptures day and night, as we learn to, you know, what, what, you get great preaching here, but it cannot be a substitute for following Jesus in the Scriptures. It cannot take the place. It needs to be what we are yielded to. I remember, or, you know, we've read various Bible verses over and over, and I remember a few years back, about six years back, I think I was just reading in the book of Acts, just in my daily devotions, and got to Acts 5, where Peter and John had been arrested, put in jail, uh, beaten, brought before the Pharisees, and the Pharisees said to them, didn't we forbid you to preach this message in his name? And now look what you've done. You filled the city with your message. You filled Jerusalem with your teaching. I thought, how many times have I read that? When last did we get a vision to fill our city? with a message that wasn't just for Christians. It was for, have a message for our city that they would say, wow, you mean God would speak to cities through the church? And that's exactly what they're accused of. And I thought that could be something neat to put on my tombstone. Rigby Wallace, born, dash, died, filled Cape Town with a message of Jesus. I think, I think if I could do 
be a part of that because it's not no one church can do it. No one ministry can do it. We do it as a collective. We do it as the body of Christ. But that gave me faith. And I remember just how many times, and the Holy Spirit made that verse come alive to me. I went back to the elders. I said, guys, you know, we're one church. We can, we, can, we can fill the city. We can create these access points where people can come and hear the message of Christ proclaim. We don't want to build a brand. We want to multiply a message. So what is holy ambition? How do you get it? I'm going to say you might feed it in other ways, but you get it primarily from the text. And that is so accessible for every one of us in the room. Number three, what does holy ambition look like? Well, we're 5,000. We're going to become 10,000 as a church. Holy ambition. We, you know, our income is this, and we want to take it to that. That's, that's, those are very, very silly matrices. I think... Uh, uh, we need to rediscover what it looks like. How would you know whether holy ambition is powerfully at work in your life in a way that's godly? Hmm. Well, godly ambition has three dimensions. It goes big. It goes wide. It goes deep. And it goes high. Holy ambition goes big when it becomes the governing big motivation of our hearts and lives. It's the big one. It's the one that affects all these other dimensions, how wide, how deep, and how high. This one is massive. Having the big ambition of becoming more and more like the person of Jesus Christ is something that needs to be freshly emphasized, proclaimed, and we need to call people to this. Here's a great question. Think about this. If you are a Christ follower and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, how's this for a question? What is His greatest ambition in your life and mine? What's the Holy Spirit's greatest ambition? What's the summons on His life in your life? What's He there to do? Well, let's check it out. Read here from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16. But when, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. If you need a church, it's the veil being removed is like the lights going on in a new way. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled, unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to the next. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. My point is this. You cannot follow Jesus and become less and less like Him. If you are following Christ, the big, big ambition of your heart and life is to become more and more like Him. It's not the achievements. It's not the acquisitions. It's not the accomplishments. It's not the accolades. It's this inner transformation that is making us more and more like Jesus Christ. I've had some moments in the last while where I've had to say yes to that in a fresh way. I've had to say, Lord, I, you know, I find myself somehow I have this certain boundary of, uh, of, of yes to becoming more like Jesus, but on the roads, I can be so ungracious. Are there two or three people that could just identify with me on that one? Just... Uh, 
It's remarkable, isn't it? Sue and I were driving the other day. We were praying together in the car. <laughs> praying, talking to Jesus. The next minute, some guy cuts me in. And, and I, could, I was talking to Jesus. And the next minute, I wanted that deacon who swears to say something for me. You know, I, I, and I, I didn't swear, but I, but, I, but I thought like less than honoring thoughts about this guy who just didn't know how to drive. And as we passed them, it turned out to be a woman. But the, I'm not making a case for men and women drivers at all. I'm just making the point of, I'm such a work in progress. And I find the great deception in my life is the tendency to measure my maturity, my growth, by what I've accomplished, and not the kind of person I'm becoming. Here's my point. There can be no greater ambition than to become more and more like Jesus. Because the kind of person you and I are becoming determines how wide, how deep, and how high we go in all the other dimensions of life. But after 38 or whatever years in ministry, I have seen how easy it is to get kind of distracted. We... uh, who I'm becoming is, is nowhere near as important as, as, uh, as what I'm doing and uh, where I go and, uh, you know, how many Twitter followers I've got and, uh, you know, how many uh, people on Instagram and uh, uh, LinkedIn are phoning and wanting and, or mailing and wanting. Don't those guys just irritate you? If you're one of them, just be gracious to me. But you get that. Everybody wants to follow you and you can get and sort of anesthetized to following Jesus yourself, and you get infatuated by this, this other crowd that is following you, we've got to start to say no, because we've said yes. And when we said yes, we've got to say, what does it look like if I've said yes? It be- Number one, I'm becoming a certain kind of person. Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, he said, um, Christianity isn't about doing all the right things. It's about becoming the kind of person for whom doing the right things is a joy and it's automatic. It flows from the kind of person. My friend, we need to light the flame under the doctrines of sanctification, which essentially is God renewing us into the image. And notice it's from one degree of glory to the next, which means we don't graduate. Like the story of the guy sculpting uh, a rock and uh, he, he's, he's sculpting a rock and uh, sharp chisel hammer and he's moving and, and one of his students said, so what are you doing? He says, no, I'm sculpting a horse. Comes back a little while later and says, that doesn't look like a horse. What are you really doing? He says, no, I'm sculpting a horse. Three days later, that doesn't look like a horse. What are you really doing? He said, okay, let me explain it to you. I take the sharp chisel. I put it into the place and with a rock, with this hammer, I hit everything in the rock that is not a horse. Holy Spirit's greatest ambition sets up his presence. He's never going to leave us. He's indwelling us for good. And he's not twiddling his thumbs. So some of our circumstances in life, the things that go wrong, all the tests and the trials, we think, what's he doing? He's He's taking the sharp chisel of his work, and he's bringing truth to bear on your heart. And he is just nudging gently, and he's hitting out of your life and mine everything that's not like Jesus. He says, I'm, 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 in, I'm serious about this. My friends, 
we're going to get to heaven one day and we're going to, we're going to have some reflection time. We're going to think, we moan and we win. We think, all oh, this, that, and these people, and these, this, and this, that, and this, that, the other. And God's going to say, how about just yielding? It's from one degree of glory to the next. I am so committed to forming. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of my son. You have a date with destiny. That's not about accomplishment. It's about transformation personally. Okay, so that's going, that's going big. But I want you to notice, uh, Paul says in verse 18, and we all with unveiled faces. This transformation is not some private journey for a few of us. Whether you've been a seasoned saint, you've got to, we need some upward pull. We need those helium balloons pulling us back into this thing of saying, Lord, I want you to be at work freshly in my life. I want to experience fresh transformation no matter where we are in our lives. To be heir to his blessings, and boy, are they generous, and not to his nature, is unbiblical. It's unbiblical at best. And it's blasphemous at worst. And this big dimension of holy ambition is what shapes the wide, the deep, and the high. And we'll make this one quick and to the point. Uh, I'm not sure if we've got that verse um, uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Have we got that verse? If we don't, I'll just read you the part. Uh, I'm, if you read from verse 1 right down to uh, verse uh, 10. Uh, we're not going to do it. I'm just going to do 9 and 10. But basically, Paul's talking about his one and only life. And he's saying, uh, so whether we are here or there. And he's talking about here is this place where we live in our tent, which is this earth suit. How many of you get frustrated every now and with your earth suit? How many of you found your earth suit is not behaving like it should all of the time? Thank God for moments of grace and renewal and healing but you, you're not going to reverse the aging process. The fall has not been finally reversed. It takes Jesus to come back. And I just noticed the other day, you know, I was standing in front of the mirror, and I noticed some hairs growing out at right angles from my ear. And I just thought, where have these come from? This is demonic. This is an attack from the kingdom of darkness. And then I just had to face the reality of my mortality and, and realize, you know, the, 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 this work of Jesus on the cross will ultimately reverse all the effects of the fall, but one of them called aging. Uh, let's age gracefully and face some of the realities when we look in the, the, the mirror. Uh, fortunately, my eyes are also diminishing as I get older, and I still say, how are you doing, you beautiful guy? But uh, it doesn't always work because sometimes I'm wearing glasses. But uh, um, I know I'm being a little bit silly, but Paul is, is, is he's struggling by, by, uh, you know, with the reality of the frustration living in this earth Tent. How many, we feel that from time to time. And he says, so, and he's arguing there's a day coming when there's, a, there's another body, another house that God has designed that is going to be the new you. What an amazing, and it's good for us to know if you, if you, if you, if you don't understand Christianity, Christianity is not pie in the sky when you die. It's connected. The realities of everything we experience in this life are connected to future realities that are more real than anything you've ever seen in your life. And he's saying there's, there's, there's some real stuff. And so those three dimensions, those last ones, Paul, Paul says this. He said, whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim or our ambition to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that we may receive what is 
due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We go from going go big to go wide. Verse 9a, so whether we're at home or away, whether we are here on planet earth or away there when we get to heaven, between this dash, between here and there, we, that's a wide berth, a wide playing field, a wide sense of, no, when you've got a big ambition to become more like Jesus, you get a big playing field, a wide playing field where your one and only life can count for the glory of God. I was sitting in the Weinberg congregation a few weeks back, and uh, Tony Johnson and Linda Johnson were out, my, my sister-in-law, my wife's sister, Linda, uh, they were in the meeting on that particular Sunday. And I remember having a real moment where I just came unglued in the presence of God. You just, you just feel like something powerful in this moment. And if you'll come back this time next week, I'll tell you what that was. Moving along, now I'll tell you now. I uh, was aware that Linda, my my, my, my sister-in-law had, had nudged Sue, my wife, to faith. And Sue had nudged me to faith. And uh, they were in the meeting. But now our kids, Ryan and Leanne, uh, Ryan and Shelley, so our daughter-in-law, are also in the meeting. And they were nudged to faith through our lives in some way. And also f- through the body of Christ and other, you know, other wonderful role players in their lives. And, and here we're worshiping, and I reach down, and there's Madison, our little granddaughter, and I hear her hand. And that Sunday, we were doing a series called uh, Go Tell. And I just saw the power of this, this wide playing field. See, it's not just ge- geography. It includes geography, uh, but it's time and space. And in the time track, it's generational. Our faith can go to multiple generations. And I had this moment where I'm holding Maddie's hand, and she just, in a way that she's never done, was hanging on to, she calls me bumpy, but don't you try that. And uh, she, she was holding my hand, and I could feel the little perspiration on her hand. I didn't want to let go of her hand. And I began to cry to God. I said, Lord, let it never be that we lose this generation and her children's children to the gospel. There has to be a way that we become a church with holy ambition that goes wide to the next generation, like Paul did when he wrote to Timothy. And he says, I commend the sincere faith, Timothy, that once lived in your mother Lois and in your grandmother Eunice that now also lives in you. This gospel has no shelf life. It was designed to cross generations. Add to that, it was designed to regions beyond. Paul is the model for that. And our churches are incarnations of that missional brief that we're here to take the gospel to the city of East London to partner. That's why we join an apostolic movement like Advance, because we realize together we're better. We can, put the, we can bring this message to a, a way wider playing field than just our own little local church. And, 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 and we've got to be delivered from that from time to time, especially in common ground, because we, we can find we get so focused on just doing our own thing. And then it's also wide in terms of things like social justice, and I just saw it in the worship as I listened to the story of uh, Breath of Life. I just want to commend you as a congregation. What a fantastic story that, that you guys have gone wide beyond yourselves, beyond just your own kids. You've gone to the abandoned, to the fatherless, to the orphans, to the widows. You've, you've moved, and, and that's also part. The social justice thing is also our call to go wider than just singing hymns, be involved in the away match of our faith, be involved in the highways and the byways. And you guys are, are doing that really, really well in that particular area. The same would be true of multiculturalism. Go wide 
Folk, just a little provocation. We, start, we need to start building relationships with people who are different to us around our dining room table. If you always have people like you, it's a ghetto. It's a cul-de-sac. We've got to start to widen the circle. We've got to grow our relational range. We've got to start to move to people who are different to us. Make a f- you can still be friends with all the people you know, but make, put some extra seats at the table and let's start to, like Jesus modeled on the cross, he drove a giant bulldozer and drove through every wall of division and he said, that's what my gospel does. It takes those who've been separated through the social engineering policies of uh, various political systems. It takes those who have been uh, imprisoned by class and wealth inequality and it, it starts to break those walls down and said, whosoever will may come. We need to have that in our hearts a little. We've just taken our dining room suite physically and we've got a master specialist carpenter to take an eight-seater and turn it into a 12-seater as a, as a sense of we, we're saying yes to more in whatever God has for us in this next generation. And folk, we'll never be more alive when we start a move. Our sameness is tameness. God wants to put a bit more wildness. Maybe that's a prophetic provocation. A little more wildness, not irresponsible, a bit of wildness, a bit of the unknown, a bit of that pioneering thing in terms of how we build relationships. Last, uh, go deep. Just do this one briefly. So we make it our aim, our ambition, to please Him. It's about intimacy. When our yes really gets into us, it's about pleasing Him. Have you ever thought about this? God's not hard to please. This notion in, in the gospel, when we who are rebels have been brought home, we're already His kids. He's not anticipating our failure. He's anticipating that as we move toward Him, as we live in this wide plan, we can also go deep. Our intimacy. Folks, just, just please, I've made the point. There's nothing like following Jesus in the Scriptures. And uh, I made the point again. I'm saying it again. You've got great preaching here. Don't outsource your Bible reading, your devotional life. Jesus says, if you abide in me and my word abides in you, you shall ask what you will and it will be done. God wants uh, to have first claim on our hearts. And that's, that's worked out in the, in the devotional life, in the life of intimacy. And when he has our heart, it's not a little bit of Jesus for some of life. It's all of Christ for all of life. Because I'm becoming a certain kind of peer person on this wide playing field, I go deeper and deeper. There's progression. And I develop a heart of radical obedience to what he calls us to. When I, if I, if you, you've been saved for you know, more than a week, then he's calling you to, baptize, to be baptized, not to jump through the church's hoops, but to follow him through the waters of baptism. When it comes to your finances, he calls us to simplify our lives so there's margin in our lives to splash generosity. To say we're becoming more like Jesus, but we spend all of our money on ourselves is, uh, is, is, is something that, that cannot be. When we're following Jesus, we are going to become more like him and generosity. So we do all the right things out of the kind of person we are becoming. Last point, go high. So glad that we end on this point. It says in verse 10, for we must all, we, not as plural, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. 
what uh, Paul is alluding to here in, uh, in the context of his day is the beamer seat at the Greek version of the Olympics, the Greek Games. The beamer seat is where those who've competed, who've done well, would ascend up to the seats. Uh, the beamer seat is also where judgments were made uh, in, in law. But in the context, and I think that's the illustration, uh, the, the, the metaphor Paul's borrowing against, we must all appear before the beamer seat because the context is rewards. He's wanting to reward us for the stuff we've done in our tent while on the earth. And, and when we get to there, there's this beautiful, fantastic, graduating moment in our lives where everything becomes worth it. Uh, we've given our yes, and we stand before him. Yes, in Jesus, in salvation, he said, you've said yes to me. I've said yes to you long before you said yes to me. When I died on the cross, I said yes to you. But this is my yes to a well-done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy. Here are the rewards of your life lived for my glory. How many of you heard of Michael Phelps? Michael Phelps, greatest Olympic swimmer ever. After the Beijing Olympics, he had got 18 gold medals. The next highest was somebody with nine medals, maybe seven medals, whatever, I'm not sure, 100% sure. And this is the greatest swimmer who's ever lived, but after Beijing, his whole life went into a downward spiral. He was caught in the fetal position of depression and despair, had developed suicidal tendencies, had had two drunk-under-the-influence charges against him, his, uh, uh, and, and he ended up in a clinic. And a guy by the name of whatever, uh, another athlete, um, traced, tracked him down and gave him Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life. That's the stuff we're talking about here, and just another angle, and gave him The Purpose Driven Life. And his life began to un ravel and the rest is history he moved from that place of absolute despair his life got recalibrated he went he went uh, he experienced this this big new focus in his life what was the problem his despair was born of the continual chasing after podium greatness the beamer seats of this world i want everybody to praise me i want to be defined by success and we read this it turned me into believing there's a, a power greater than myself. This is after he's, or while he's reading the book. And there's a purpose for me on this planet. It helped me when I was in a place where I needed the most help, he said. It affected him so deeply that Phelps would read the book to his fellow, fellow patients in this clinic, which earned him the nickname Preacher Mark. Ray Lewis uh, is, the, is the athlete when he, when he, when he gave uh, Purpose Driven Life to Phelps. Uh, he, he, phoned, he phoned Phelps, and this is, this is uh, Phelps says, man, this book is crazy. The thing that's going on here, oh my gosh, my brain, I can't thank you. You're freaking me out, man. You saved my life. What's the problem with the story in the room, friends? Because we're still making much of Michael Phelps. What about Ray Lewis? He's a guy who had legal issues. The law was after him. But in the middle of his brokenness and his journey, he's just having a book. All he did was hand a guy a book, and his life turned upside down. My friend, there's something in this for all of us. What are you giving away on a daily basis that one day you'll stand before Jesus and you'll say, well done. Because we all know about Billy Graham, but we don't know about Billy Graham's Sunday school teacher who faithfully taught the word of God to her. We've got to get rid of the podium greatness, and we've got to know there's only one beamer seat, and we've got to be prepared to live 
for that day when one day his nail-scarred hands will rest on your shoulder and he'll say, well done, Anthea. Say, well done, Vicus. He'll say, well done, whatever your name is. And in that moment, his gracious eyes, well done to the baby, will caress the depths of your soul with the ultimate approval that your heart is long for all of your days. We get that approval now in the gospel, but the lie of does your life matter? It matters when it's built toward Jesus Christ. Don't you love that Ephesians 3 talks about this love that is this big love of God. It goes high, it goes deep, it goes wide. That's the gospel. And we're called to live in the gospel with a sense of ambition to take the love of God along those dimensions. Is that helpful? Thank you, Matt, you guys and your team for opening your pulpit to me. Thank you for letting me share my heart. I hope that this will stir you uh, and make uh, Jesus more attractive to the depths of your being in terms of who you trust the most, what you're aiming for. And Father, thank you for every person here today. Thank you for uh, all the big moments we've gathered around. And I just want to thank you that... Uh, you're not backing off any of us in the room. You care about us. And you're wanting to take our dash and baptize it with a sense of meaning and purpose. And I'm asking you to make us men and women with holy ambition. Won't you burn and awaken within us a big yes to what you're doing in the world. And won't you give us courage to say our no's because of what you're worthy of. Thank you so much for this time together and for the word of God. Amen. Amen.